Something has changed in my life recently. My father passed. It was sudden. We were drinking wine a week before he died. You know, it was it was a shock, to say the least. So I thought I should let you know for some reason, even though I've never met you in my life. Uh, but uh, not that I feel that I have to defend myself for not uploading in a while, because I do whatever the fuck I want to do. But because I honestly feel that the way I speak has changed. My thoughts, my humor, you know, everything's slightly different. So if you think I sound different or slightly depressed, now you know where it's coming from. Today's episode is about Alexander's first actions after his father died. And this is my first episode after my father died. So there are absolutely no comparisons to how I acted. I simply got shit-faced at the funeral. I had six or seven brandies, one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, and then I was simply amazed at how many people came at the funeral. <laughs> it's a shame it was a funeral because I had a fucking... I had a great time. Uh, but they do that at Greek funerals. They... Um, they have this massive, they have like three or four bottles of brandy and everyone just helps themselves. And it really fucking made my day, man. I'm not a big drinker. I can go for months without drinking, without any alcohol. But at that instance, it really helped, man. I was so happy just then to see everyone. I was just amazed at everything that was happening. Anyway, that's uh, that's my sad little story. <laughs> and uh, now let's get to the episode. Episode 22, Alexander's Purge, Alexander the Great Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Write me a review on iTunes, and if I read it out at the end, you'll receive a gift from me all the way from Greece. Send me a donation through PayPal if you enjoy the episode. Tell your friends about it, and uh, yeah, that's about it. (laughs) When Alexander was asked how he managed to control the Greeks... He answered by postponing nothing that has to be done today for tomorrow. We're going to see that Alexander was not the type of guy that would say something nice and then live a completely different life. He incorporates it into his lifestyle. He feels it. He lives it. He provides a good example for those of us that tend to procrastinate. Last time we talked about Philip being murdered. The year was 336. After his body was carried away, Antipater, or Adipatros in Greek, with almost comical speediness, I imagine him kicking the dead body, get the fuck out of my way, announces to everyone that Alexander now was the new king. One of the very first nobles to announce his allegiance to Alexander was another Alexander, from Ligistida, son of Aeropos. Aeropos had a few sons, Alexander whom we have mentioned, as well as Iromenis and Araveos. These two lads were later accused of being involved with the killing of Philip and were executed. And just to be sure they knew why they were being executed, they were killed on Philip's grave. There isn't a clear reason why Alexander decided to have the two brothers killed. Just because we know what they were accused of doesn't mean we know his true motives. 
possibly, but probably not, they claimed the Macedonian throne, or maybe they wanted Amindas to be king. As we mentioned in the first few episodes, he was son of Perdikas III when Philip was made prefect. Amindas wasn't the kind of guy to even want the throne. He had had an easy life within the palace, but Alexander didn't want to risk it, so he got rid of his supporters. So Alexander the, the Ligistian did okay for the time being. Him being the first person to honour Alexander as king definitely helped, but marrying one of Antipater's daughters probably worked in his favour too. Now, what I've described to you, of course, didn't happen in a single day. All right, you're good. You two executed on my father's grave. Moving on. No, it wasn't like that. You know, perhaps I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. Our Greek historians, Plutarch, Arian and Theodoros, say he immediately looked at his military obligations. Then his first job was to calm the Macedonians down. It was only a minute ago they saw Philip die in front of them. Give him a sec, for fuck's sake. He tells his people that all Macedonian citizens are to be excluded from all public duties apart from military service. So no one pays any tax for a little while while we find our footing kind of thing. This the people loved. And it's something that speaks to Alexander's character. We know the nation's treasury was nearly empty when he became king, and a few contributions would have most certainly been welcome to cover the cost of a campaign in Asia, but he prefers the love of his people. Then he came into contact with ambassadors from various states. He managed to set their mind at ease. Don't worry, guys. The plan is the same. Nothing has changed. His friends, Arpalos, Ptolemy, Nearchos, by the way, the Ptolemy, Ptolemaeus, the fucking, the future Macedonian pharaoh, dynasty creator, fucking hell, amazing that they're all in this story. Anyway, Nearchos and others that were sent to exile by Philip returned. Then he took care of the arrangements of the, of, uh, the burial of his father, including something strange that happens with uh, Macedonian funeral, funerals. According to tradition, Pafsanias, Pafsanias' three sons were killed along with the horse he tried to get away with. This is when Aeropos' sons were also killed, Eromenes and Araveos. One that managed to escape Alexander's wrath was Arideos, his stepbrother, as we have said. He had some sort of issue, we don't really know what, probably some mental disability. Arideos was only a few years older than Alexander. He was born in 359 and Alexander in 356. They were probably buddies playing in the Macedonian court. Alexander could tell, you know, he wasn't really a threat, so, you know, why not spare him, the old lad? That, or he, uh, or he probably felt sorry for him, having been poisoned by his mother, as Plutarch tells us. There are those that say Philip was buried in Amphipolis, and you can tell because the job looks like it was done as quick as possible. Alexander spoke about this, saying that in a later time he would create a monument that could easily stand against the great Egyptian pyramids. But fate had other plans for him. 
Alexander was correct to rush things because even though he informed the Corinthian League that the king has simply changed in name, the plan, as we have said, was the same. We're going to Persia to beat the fuck out of them. Some simply forgot what they had promised and tell the people Philip is dead, so no need to worry about the Macedonians. The Arcadians, Amvrakians and Thebans tell the Macedonian guards that Philip had installed to piss off, so very openly declining Alexander's rule. Perhaps declining isn't the correct word. You know, openly, basically, you know, not, uh, say it, say it. Anyway, yeah, not, not, uh, not accepting that he's king or the, or the hegemon of the League of Corinth. The Voetians hid Amindas, son of Perdiccas, who could tell what was happening and decided to skedaddle. He, uh, he had Amindas, son of Antiochus, with him. Lots of Amindas. Amindas was a popular name back then, apparently. They went from town to town, uh, hoping to find some support. We have evidence from uh, inscriptions that have been found showing they went to Oropos and Livadia. So they probably went to Thebes as well. These are very close. They're only about, you know, maybe 40 or 50 kilometers away. But it was Athens that made the most noise, especially our friend Demosthenes. We haven't mentioned our friend in a while. Demosthenes had lost his daughter six days before Philip died. The Athenians held a custom back then that after a close member of family died, you would watch your behavior for a few days. You wouldn't leave the house and get shit-faced drunk, like I did. <laughs> you would wear clothes that would show your mourning, you know, black clothes, we still do that today, uh, for about a month. Today we do it for 40 days, anyway, and other sorts of things. When he heard through his spies from Pella that Philip died, he wore white, put on a crown on his head, and started running in the streets of Athens, and telling everyone that he's seen a dream that soon Athens will have happy news. The Athenians were probably wary, you know, they were th their thinking could have been this guy was just crying about his daughter, and now he's parading in Athens, you know, saying everything that he's saying, must have been some dream. Once news came from Aegeus about Philip's death, some thought Demosthenes was blessed by Zeus. You know, the gods spoke to him in his sleep. He will be the one to save us from any disaster. You know, we have to completely just trust Demosthenes, which is a very clever little trick to pull. If you could do it, right, why not? Uh, they even voted to have Paphsanias, so the murder, the killer, uh, crowned with a golden wreath. You know, this shows us how they felt about Philip and his dynasty. Demosthenes knows exactly what's been happening in Pella and Aegeus. He knew about Olibiada killing Cleopatra, about Cleopatra's family, where she comes from and all that, who was in Asia Minor, which generals were sent to Asia Minor, who's back home, who likes Alexander and who doesn't. He even went as far to send Parmenion and Attalus a letter telling him, telling them, Guys, get rid of that Margitis kid you have on the throne and Athens will have your back. Margitis is a very interesting way to characterize someone. <clears throat> He's a character from the Trojan War. Margos in ancient Greek means crazy. Margitis 
wasn't uh, in the Iliad. <laughs> he, uh, he wasn't written, you know, he wasn't by, he wasn't in the classic, uh, classic place. He was in a, uh, in a play which satirized the Trojan War. So think of like scary movie, uh, satirizing Scream. Uh, you know, Scream, no, no, wait, no, Scary Movie, I still get the two confused. Scary Movie has its own characters, right, which stay with you. You know, this is my strong hand. <laughs> Fucking, it's such a dumb film, but so funny. Watch it, Scary Movie 1, Scary Movie 2 is where the strong hand thing is in. Anyway, Margitis was a buffoon, uh, but from a noble family. Aristotle has written about him. He said the gods didn't teach him how to dig or to plow, nor to do anything else. Demosthenes' characterization shows us one thing. It's that Philip, that Alexander's love for the Trojan War was a known fact. Attalus, probably with Parmenion's blessing, must have been elated at the idea. He never liked Alexander and thought, yeah, yeah, and, you know, how and when do we start? How can we get rid of him? There was a third commander in Asia Minor, Amindas, <laughs> another Amindas, uh, command of the mercenaries, son of Araveos. Araveos, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, as I said, was assassinated by Alexander. So you can bet the house he was into the idea of getting Alexander off the throne. The Mosthenes even wrote a letter to Darius, so the Persian king, asking for help. Darius probably thought, you know, what's the Athenian bugging me for? Soon I'm going to have Alexander marching against me. I need all the gold I have to defend myself. Eschines and Phocion don't agree with Demosthenes. Eschines characterized the letter as vulgar and shameful. Phocion said... Don't forget, it's still the same army that beat us in Heronia, just one man short. <laughs> Which is fucking very good. Uh, and, and it's around this time Alexander travels, or travelled, should have said, travelled south. Now his advisors recommended, with its biggest supporters being Antipater, not to bother with the Greeks in the south. At this time, he should focus on the barbaric tribes on the northern border of Macedonia. But as we've seen, there's a bunch of shit happening in southern Greece. You have Athens, Thebes, Arcadia, and many others wanting to end their relationship with Macedonia. And in Alexander's mind, this was going, this is what he should be focusing on. Plutarch has given us the amazing gift of informing us what Alexander said around this time. He said that if he, ha if he was to show any form of weakness, his enemies in their totality would jump on the opportunity in order to destroy him. We see Alexander do this often. That was him going against the advice given by his elders. This was him showing everyone that he was the boss. And he was controlling everything. You obviously can't be, can't have a king that's embarrassed to give his opinion. But I can guarantee you some of the older folks were like, oh shit, here he goes again. Thinking that he was just disagreeing for the sake of it. As I'm sure we've probably all run into a few people who are like that. So Alexander went south with a few selected soldiers. They followed a coastal route, passing from Methoni and Pivna, 
hoping to reach Thessaly. Thessaly, I remind you, were Philip's first allies, and we see Alexander follow suit. This also shows that he understands the importance of having good relationships with neighboring states, and that he respects them for being daddy's first friends, of course. He reached Tebi, uh, where Tebi is like a, like a place of Greece anyway, uh, where a force of Thessalian soldiers blocked his entrance. The opposition soldiers were between Mount Ossa and Olympus. And they tell him, bro, just chill for a sec. We're going to have a quick meeting, see if we can let you through, and we'll be right back. There's a nice little story about how he managed to go through. A bunch of historians don't give it much credit, but I'm no historian and I like the little story, so here he goes. Alexander says, okay, you go and have your meeting. Meanwhile, he tells his engineers to build stairs that are going to be used to climb the steep side of Mount Ossa, the, the side that was looking at the sea. And by the time the Thessalians returned from the meeting, the Macedonians have climbed Mount Ossa and are in a field behind them. Apparently, there's still traces of these stairs. They're called Alexander's Climax. And apart from a few Pornhub clips, which made for an interesting wank, <laughs> and uh, a painting by Andre Castain, 1898-99, called Alexander's Climax, nothing really showed up. Uh, so the Thessalians couldn't believe it, right? How could it be possible to talk to someone for a brief moment, turn your back to say something about them, and then find them where they weren't supposed to be? You know, of course, they're fucking shocked. But Alexander was never mean to them. After he showed them that he can do whatever he wants, he was kind and charming. He reminded them they got along well with his father, and he was equally willing to be their friend. They have common ancestors, seeing that his family were descendants of Hercules and Achilles. He managed to convince them to name him ruler of Thessaly, as was done for his father, which we talked about way back when. Uh, they gave him some cavalry. Thessalians had amazing horses. I'm sure he appreciated that. But even more so, seeing that daddy didn't leave much in the treasury, they agreed to pay tax, meaning the Macedonian funds would get a bit of a breather. Also, they gave him two votes for the Amphictyonic Council, as they did for his father Philip. To thank them and show that he respects his ancestors, he allowed Thea birthplace of Achilles, full tax exemption. He didn't stay in Thessaly for very long. If it was Philip, he, uh, he would have probably, we would have seen him marry some aristocrat's daughter, have a party, and then probably try and persuade someone to offer some financial help for his campaign in Asia. But not Alexander. Uh, he was already at the hot gates when people were still talking about the nice little trick he, uh, we mentioned to get around the Thessalians. He calls for an Amphictyonic council to be held. The first thing he wanted to talk about was him becoming hegemon of the League. Just a quick reminder of the oath they swore to Philip. This is when the Amvracians begged Alexander for forgiveness. Alexander said, yeah, it was kind of quick how they, uh, how they ran out to claim their independence when he would have gladly given it to them himself. 
Then he goes to Thebes, which, as we saw, sent the Macedonian guard home the minute they found out about Philip's death, therefore declaring that they consider Alexander as an illegitimate king. They woke up on a uh, lovely Greek morning and see a massive chunk of the Macedonian army fully formed, deployed in front of Kavmia, the citadel of ancient Thebes. Basically telling them, I'm going to fuck you till you love me, <laughs> to quote a great man, Mike Tyson. Uh, the Thebans, I imagine, take a look at the messengers Alexander sent, and then another towards the Macedonians stalking them, and decide it's best to capitulate. Meanwhile, in Athens, they were telling their people Alexander had died, fighting the Trevelyans. Lo and behold, the dead had risen, and Alexander was right next to them. Thebes and Athens are only an hour away driving, so roughly 100k. So they panic, right? They send women and children to the mountains, hopefully to hide them from the Macedonian army. The Athenians send messengers to talk to the new king. They tell him they are deeply sorry for not following him from the very first moment he was crowned king. Alex, being a good guy, forgave them. It was probably around this time Attalus changed his tune. He could see it was futile to oppose Alexander, so he sent him the letters Demosthenes had sent him. Alexander was still unable to trust him. He thought Attalus was playing games. He was probably thinking, yeah, but I don't know how you reply to him, bro. You know what? Yeah, okay, so you get letters from someone who's talking shit. You want to know what you said back, right? Um, Curtius is where we get this information. Theodoros gives us another story that Alexander sent a lad called Ekateos with a few selected soldiers to bring back Attalus alive if they could. If they couldn't, they should murder him as soon as possible. The Theodorus' words, not mine. In 335, Ekateos talked with Parmenion and, uh, and convinced him to give up on his son-in-law, Attalus, and follow him under Alexander's rule. It was here, apparently, he was informed that he would be second in command, answering only to Alexander. Attalus couldn't be brought back alive, so he ended up getting murdered. Um, he played the game and lost, you know, fucking, I can't fault him. I mean, who, who knows what's going to happen in history? You know, it's very easy now to look back, oh yeah, Attalus, it was such an idiot, how could he be against Alexander the soon-to-be-great? But, you know, you can't, you don't fucking know, lad. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm impressed by Parmenion. I see it from my point of view. You know, I have a father-in-law. I love the guy. I love spending time with him. You know, we, we philosophize. We drink wine. We talk about ideas, not people, you know, and crappy gossip. I truly wish all of you are as lucky as I am when it comes to my in-laws. Parmenion and Attalus could also have this kind of relationship. Attalus married his daughter. He was also in charge of a unit which answered to him, which means they were army buddies. And probably most of you don't know, the relationships you form in the army are some of the closest you ever are going to have in your life. Now it's been about, you know, 10 years since I did my national service. I don't really talk to anyone anymore. But when I was in it, you know, <laughs> how can I say this? Uh, I could understand how a gay man thinks, you know. So 
you, you, you get very close. You're very close with the other lads. Parmenion could see what was happening, right? There was no stopping Alexander. He was going to be second in command against the Persians, answering only to Alex. Seems like a nice offer, but later on, as we shall see, things didn't go great. Amindas, who lost family members during Alexander's purge, decides to forget all about it and agrees to follow the new king. He would be given a commanding position for secondary subjects, but still showing him his trust. Alexander then calls for the League of Corinth to meet. All states were invited. Those who agreed with his kingship and those who didn't, most of them did. The Megarians named him a citizen of their state. The Athenians had done the same, but still some of them were looking for ways to get rid of him, as we've said. He made a comment that is worth mentioning about the Athenians, that until then they had only given citizenship to Heracles, and now you're giving it to me. Uh, someone has studied the new king because he must have loved their their kind act, you know, as if he was following the steps of his demagogue ancestor. The Spartans said it's not in their blood to have a foreigner lead them. Some cities in Arcadia say the same. Alex lets it slide. He doesn't want to enforce anything on anyone. The only thing he wanted was to leave Greece in a calm state. Everyone get along with everyone for the most part. He would put Philo-Macedonian leaders around the neighboring states, mostly in Achaia and Messenia. This was done rather quickly because it violates the Treaty of the League. <laughs> no city should meddle in the affairs of another. Alexander always covers his tracks, of course, leaving nothing to chance. I bet the other states could see what he was doing, <laughs> but, uh, but there wasn't much they could do about it. He also tried this, uh, this cringy trick. He brought a man in from Ephesus. He announces that this man talks as a representative of the Greeks in Asia Minor. He then went on, this man, <laughs> he went on to beg Alexander to start his freedom campaign. The people need you. What are you waiting for? Um, Fear not, my good man, Alexander said. I have thought of everything. Then he pushes him off the stage, and then Alexander went on to describe how much each soldier would cost. One drachma a day for a soldier, a vekadarchis, someone who's in charge of ten men, would get forty drachmas a month, a vimiritis, he who is in charge of thirty men, would get eighty drachma, and if you're in the cavalry, sixty, 60 drachma, and then he would, uh, then he went on about how much grain he would need to feed the, to feed the army. The Athenians, having the strongest naval power, which no one can deny them, were liable to supply Alexander with naval supplies and ships. Demosthenes does not stop slagging off Alexander. He keeps telling everyone there is nothing stopping him from attacking Athens. His speeches named on Alexander's conditions, which wasn't really a speech given by him or written by him but it was but it's been in history as you know anyway alexander's conditions by demosthenes uh, it was a politician of the same agenda of the same political agenda as him which gives us this speech but anyway um it's quite but it's still nice though to uh, to have alexander allow demosthenes to keep talking he keeps calling him tyrant and all these other names 
but the Athenians don't really have any other option. They agree to give Alexander and his army anything he might need. And let's not forget Alexander has his army with him. This alone shows that he wasn't really giving you that many options. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how the first council in Corinth went with Alexander as hegemon. They renewed their obligations to Macedonia indefinitely, as they did with Philip, and again added to follow Alexander's descendants.